So I traveled overseas uh, back in June, first time I'd ever really done that. So I had to get a passport. And I was under the assumption that I would only need my passport to like just get on the plane. But once we got over there, I came to realize I needed my passport on me all the time. I, at one point, I tried to buy candy, and I had to show my passport to buy, a stick, to, to buy some gum. Uh, and, and I was told it was imperative, Kyle, don't go anywhere. Don't leave the room. Don't ever be in a place without your passport. And to the point that I really got paranoid about it. And I, I don't know if you're like this, but I would walk around and just every three to four minutes reach down and touch my pocket to make sure it was still in there. Because I knew in a foreign country where I didn't speak the language, that document, that little booklet, was really the only way for me to prove my identity and to prove that I belonged there. Um, Now, proving your identity, for us at least, is not something we typically ever think about. And really, it's very simple. You probably in your pocket right now or in your purse, you've got a driver's license. I don't carry my passport around. I mean, it's, it's in the sock drawer right now. I don't need it today because I don't need it to walk the streets of of Ridgeland, Mississippi, right? But if you said, if somebody came to you and said, prove your identity, that's a strange question, but you could pull out a driver's license and very simply solve that problem. Well, today we've got a much more difficult question to answer. How would you prove your faith? How do you prove that you're a Christian? Or can you prove it? Is there there even such a thing? Because at least for us, in, in, in our kind of modern way of thinking, we have two things that we, we understand about spirituality, about faith, that we basically say you can't really prove. And the first is, we believe that faith is primarily a private thing. Because it's just private, because it's just between me and God, there's no reason to prove it. There's nothing to prove. It's private. And then secondly, we we think about spirituality as purely spiritual. That is something you can't see, you can't touch. It's only something you feel, and therefore you can't prove it. You can't prove spirituality, you can't prove faith. But as we look in James chapter 2 today, uh, y'all, James doesn't just ask the question, James also provides the answer. Can you prove that you are a Christian? James gives a strong affirmative. He says, yes, in fact, you better have proof of your faith. Because true faith is not something that is purely private and spiritual. It is something that can be seen and felt and witnessed and experienced because James says true faith is meant to be lived out. Now, he's already spent most of chapter 1 and chapter 2 even to this point telling us this. But today is kind of the crescendo. What we're going to look at today, beginning in the middle of chapter 2, is really the centerpiece of the book of James. It's probably the most famous portion of the book of James. And frankly, it's also the most difficult and troubling part of the book of James. So we're just going to try our best to tackle it this morning together. Um, James chapter 2, how does real faith work? How does real faith work? That's the issue. Start with me in verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Now stop right there. James is is giving us uh, a series of questions, two questions that are meant to be rhetorical. A rhetorical question means that the answer is assumed. We ought to know what the answer is without it having to be spelled out for us. James says first, what use is it if someone says he has faith but has no works? The implied answer is it's of no use. Can that faith save him? Again, the assumed answer is no, it can't. 
So James starts off in, in no uncertain terms, but, but I want to help you understand that what James is saying here, he's referring to a person who says he has faith. James is not dealing with a person who has legitimate faith, and James is trying to create doubt in the midst of it. James is talking about a person who says he has faith. There's a form of spirituality, James says, that is believed and professed by the, by the lips, perhaps, but does not have works to accompany it. It doesn't have a life that shows it forth. And the question is, does that form of faith, does that form of spirituality make you a Christian? Does it save you? And James assumes right up front the answer is no. No. Now, that's a, that can be very, a very startling thought right off the bat, right? But James wants to push now. He doesn't want to just leave us there. He wants to make his case, and he spends the entirety of chapter 2 doing that. Look at verse 15 now. Test case. He says, if a brother or sister, this is a fellow Christian, is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? All right, in, th in this case, you've got a fellow Christian, someone who's in dire need. They lack basic necessities, food and clothing. And just imagine this, that in response to that need, I've got this person standing right in front of me, and my response is this, I'll pray for you. May God clothe you. May God feed you. Go in peace. Amen. Now, no matter how spiritual that might appear on the surface, James says, what good have I done? I've accomplished nothing. I've done nothing. I'm neglecting mercy. I'm pretending to be merciful. I'm speaking words of mercy, but I'm not actually applying them to the situation. James says, what use is that? Again, the assumed answer, it's of no use. It's of no use. And that's how he comes to his first conclusion. You see the first little miniature conclusion, verse 17. He says, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. A professed faith that does not reveal itself in obedience to God, James says that is a dead faith. Now, when James says faith by itself, he's making an important point there. Faith by itself, um, that's, the, that's the idea that, that I, could, I can believe in Jesus in some kind of spiritual vacuum. I can believe in Jesus, and it can be very important to me, and I can tell people I believe in Jesus, but it only exists outside of all the other categories of my life somehow. It never actually interacts with my heart and with my behavior, with my choices, with my speech, with my treatment of other people. And so what James is saying is, if you call Jesus Lord, but you don't submit your life to him as Lord, if you don't walk in obedience to him, then your faith is dead. He uses the Greek word nekros. It's where we get the term necrotic tissue, dead tissue. It's lifeless, James says. It's not real. It's only spoken. It's not lived, and therefore we can't count it as genuine. Um, he made this same point back in chapter one. I think we looked at it maybe two weeks ago. He said, if I think myself to be religious, but I do not bridle my tongue, I don't control my speech, he says, I deceive my own heart, and my religion is worthless. James just never beats around the bush. He's talking about a professed faith that doesn't work itself out in real life. He says, that's not faith at all. 
Now, James is not the most popular book in the Bible to our modern sensibilities. That, that comes as no surprise to us, right? If James were standing up here preaching this for the first time, and, and we didn't somehow we didn't know it was, it was in the Bible, we'd never heard this stuff before, we'd be very, maybe very insulted. And here, see, here's the pushback. This is the modern mentality here. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You can't judge my faith. You can't, you can't say anything about my faith. My faith is between me and God. Remember, that's the way we think. And you can't see my faith. You can't, you can't hold me to some standard like that, right? What I do is what I do. That's my business. My, my faith with God, my relationship with God, and how I live it out, that's my business. That's nobody else's business but me. Well, you know what? James actually anticipates this. This is not a modern thing at all. This, this may feel modern, but people have been making this argument since the beginning. And James creates for us an imaginary conversation where he deals with that pushback. We see it in verse 18. He says, someone may well say, well, you have faith and I have works. As if those two things can exist separately from one another, distinct from one another. Then James responds, okay, show me your faith without the works. And I'll show you my faith by my works. You see his argument there? Y'all, there, there are a great many religions that are purely mystical. The, the goal of the religion is to commune, to connect with the divine or with the universe, and to detach yourself from reality. It's a, it's a religion that's experienced only in the abstract. Christianity is not like that at all. The whole story of Christianity is that God sent his son into the world, into our world as a human being, flesh and blood, just like us. Christianity engages face-to-face with reality. We're not trying to detach from reality. And so when, when James talks about a person who professes faith only, he says, okay, show me that faith without the accompanying good deeds. And the obvious thing is that that's, you can't. It's impossible. You can talk about it, but you can't see it. You can't show it forth. And James says that's because it's not there. Now, I'll show you my faith by my works. You'll see the evidence in how I speak and how I live and how I treat people. You're going to see it, and therefore you'll know it's there. It's the tangible evidence that proves the otherwise unseen reality. It's the outward evidence that shows that the inward reality is true and genuine. Um, Y'all, this is an issue that we can deceive ourselves on. And I I do think it's interesting in James, if you read through James over and again, he cautions us against deception. Do not be deceived. He even says, do not deceive yourselves, which is a problem we often have. How might we deceive ourselves? This may seem like common sense, okay? He uses the analogy, oh, someone's in front of you, they need food, they need clothing. You can't just wish them well. That's not true faith. You've got to help them. Well, of course, we all know that. But how might we deceive ourselves to live in a spiritual vacuum that doesn't connect to real life? Um, Y'all, there are so many wonderful things about living in the South in the Bible Belt. But one of the disadvantages, if we're just honest, is that most of us have grown uh, grown up around so many religious assumptions and environments that we make the natural assumption that we just are something because that's all we know. I mentioned earlier I was out of the country. I was in the Middle East or in Central Asia um, a few months ago, uh, 99.9% Muslim. 
and you're Muslim because you're born into that culture. You don't convert to Islam. You don't become a Muslim. You're just born into it, right? So the assumption always is, even if you're not a devoted Muslim, you're still a Muslim because that's what you're born into. And y'all, the truth is, a lot of us, especially if you grew up in the Bible Belt, we make the same assumption oftentimes about Christianity, that for so long we've grown up around Christian values, and there's churches on every corner, and the businesses that we uh, patronize, they've got the Ten Commandments out front, and, and highways, when you're driving down the highway and you take the exit to go to the gas station, there's a giant cross right there at the exit. Of course we're Christian. Look at the cross, right? Everybody knows the Christmas story. Everybody knows the Easter story. And the temptation, the very natural assumption, is that I have my faith by association. I assume I'm a Christian because that's what I know and that's what I've grown up around. That was my story. I grew up going to church. I assumed I was a Christian. And y'all, I want to tiptoe around this slightly here, but the church, a lot of times we as the church, we perpetuate this. We don't really mean to, but we'll do it. And I just want you to imagine this scenario. If I, as a pastor, if I stand up and say, you know, Jesus can solve your problems. All you have to do is repeat this prayer after me. All you have to do is sign the card. All you have to do is raise your hand. All you have to do is come to the front, and you're in. Now, God can save people like that, but so often what happens is we present Jesus as a, as a formula, as a very shallow thing that you can just have, and all you've got to do is, is repeat after me. And what we end up with, oftentimes, we end up with a faith that is in word only and not in deed. A faith that doesn't change how we live. And James says, listen, feeling spiritual is not the same as having true faith. Going to church is not the same as having genuine faith. Just knowing the right answers does not necessarily mean you have real faith. Faith without works, being by itself, he says, it's dead Now, if that wasn't enough, James pushes even a little further here. Look at verse 19. This is a great verse. (laughs) James says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Great. The demons also believe and shudder. Now, what's he talking about right here? This, he's quoting Deuteronomy. There was a very, very common, popular Jewish and Christian phrase from Deuteronomy, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's a statement of right belief. We believe that God is the only true God. It's something that, that Jews and Christians have quoted forever. Well, James says, that's good. If you believe that, that's good. That's wonderful. But guess what? The demons believe that too. Satan believes that God is the only true God. Satan knows that that's true, and it terrifies him. And so the point is this, that that particular belief, that right belief, James says, does not turn a demon into a Christian. Neither does it make me a Christian, just because I profess it. Simply acknowledging spiritual truth, simply being around spiritual things, is not the same as possessing true faith. Now, this is a hard message, but this is, this is James, has, James is trying to save us here, y'all. He's trying to rescue us from false assumptions. Now, he's going to give us some examples here, okay? Because the word itself is abrasive, it's meant to be, but he's going to show us how this works. He wants to give us two examples from the Old Testament. Very, very helpful here. And he's having this imaginary conversation, right? He's imagining someone pushing back against him. We see it in verse 20, he continues. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow... That faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? 
you see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Now, this is a reference to one of the most famous, most dramatic stories in the Bible. It's from Genesis 22, if you want to go back and read it. Where God calls Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son Isaac on the altar. And Abraham obeyed God. He went through with it until God stopped him from going through with it. God preserved Isaac's life. But you notice what James says about Abraham. He says that Abraham was justified by works. And what he means there is that Abraham's faith was shown to be genuine by his act of obedience. His faith was proven true by his obedience. And if you look again at verse 22, James says, faith was working with his works, because those two things can't be separated. They have to be together. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. Um, It was Abraham's obedience to God that brought his faith to its intended goal. That's the way we need to think about James's words here. Not that Abraham's faith wasn't good enough until he earned uh, a little more by doing what God asked him to do. Then he was finally a faithful person. No, James is saying that, that Abraham's obedience brought his faith to its intended goal, to its ultimate end. Obedience was the proof of Abraham's faith. The faith was already real. We need to understand that. But it was completed through obedience. It was perfected. It was shown to be true as he walked it out, as he lived in obedience. And so if the question is ever asked, if anybody ever says, uh, how do we know Abraham was a man of faith? You probably encounter that at work periodically, don't you? No. Um, How do we know Abraham was a man of faith? We say, well, look, here's James's reply. Look at how he lived. We don't just have to take the Bible's word for it that Abraham was a faithful man. We see it on the pages, how he lived, how he acted, what he did in response to the word of God. That's how we know he was a man of faith. He lived it out. His faith was completed. It reached its intended goal. Now skip verse uh, 24 for a second. Go to verse 25. All right, we'll come back to 24. Verse 25 is the second example. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Uh, This is a story from Joshua chapter 2. Rahab lived in Jericho. She lived among the enemies of Israel. She was not a Jewish person. She was part of the enemy. And yet Rahab, when, when Israel sends spies to Jericho to scope out the city, it was Rahab who received the spies, who welcomed them, sheltered them, and protected them from harm. And she did it, Joshua tells us, because she feared the Lord and not the pagan idols of her own culture. She feared the Lord of Israel, and therefore she acted in faith to protect the Israelites, even at the risk of her own life. Now, of all the examples James could have picked out of the Old Testament, why did he pick Rahab? Abraham, we understand. Abraham is a big deal. Abraham's the father of Israel, right? But James's point is clear. He picks Abraham and he picks Rahab. Listen, God can produce genuine faith in anybody. Anybody. Abraham is the classic example. He's the father of Israel. He's an obviously great man, a faithful man. 
But you also have Rahab, who was a prostitute. She was a Gentile, not a Jew. She was a woman, not a man. She was very low on the social ladder. And yet she became a woman of faith who we will meet in heaven and we will esteem her forever because of the way she lived out her faith. We celebrate her even now. Y'all, here's the truth, and you've got to hear this. There is not a single person in this room who is disqualified from the grace of God. You don't have to be an Abraham to get in. If you esteem yourself, or even if the world esteems you as a Rahab, as someone very low, as someone unworthy, well, guess what? That's true. The truth is we're all unworthy. None of us deserve to be in this room. None of us deserve to call ourselves children of God. And that's the whole point, that nobody is too far, is too far gone from God's grace. Whatever your past looks like, whatever your assumptions are about God or about yourself, God can save you. God can transform you by his grace. He's been doing it from the beginning. He did it for Abraham. He did it for Rahab. I think James's point is clear. No one is outside of the reach of God's grace. Now backtrack with me. I told you we skipped verse 24. I don't make a habit of doing that, but I did it just for the sake of being linear here. Verse 24, James, he comes to a very clear and very logical conclusion and frankly kind of troubling here. I'll show you why. Verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now is James saying that a person is saved by faith plus works? Because on the surface, that may seem what, what he's saying. That faith in Jesus is good, but it's not enough to save you. It's not enough to get you into heaven. You, you've got to work your way into eternal life. You've got to work the rest of the way there. You've got to, faith gets you halfway up the ladder, but then you've got to work your way up the rest of the way. It, see, if that's what James is saying, we've got a terrible problem. Because there are so many scriptures in the Bible that contradict that way of thinking, that go against that. Um, and I, I'm going to show you one. Uh, in, in Romans 3.28, I'm going to put these up there together, okay, for y'all. In Romans 3.28, the Apostle Paul says, We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now look at this. Look at these together. James says a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Paul says a man is justified by faith apart or alone from the works of the law. We're dismissed. You guys go have a great week. <laughs> now, this appears to be a contradiction. And frankly, there are, there are people throughout history who have said, contradiction, James and Paul are at odds. But here's a wonderful truth. And this is not Kyle, your pastor, trying to dance his way around difficulty. Um, this, is, this, this is how the Bible actually gives us not confusion, but clarity. I want you to see this. And if this gets a little dense, you just forgive me here, but we need this. We understand what James has actually been telling us this entire time. Faith without works is dead and it's useless. In other words, James says there is a kind of faith that is not faith at all. It's a kind of faith that's merely human and not divine, meaning it's not real, it's not genuine. If, a fa- if, if you have a faith that does not produce good works, James says you have a mirage. You have a form of spirituality, but not the power, not the substance. In James chapter 1, remember, he calls it worthless religion. And so think about these two examples again, okay? What James gave us, the two people, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Do you know when that happened? That's in Genesis 15. 
The sacrifice of Isaac happens in Genesis 22, seven chapters later. Abraham had faith and was reckoned as righteous years before the sacrifice of Isaac. The action in, verse, in chapter 22 sprung from the faith that started in Genesis 15. The faith was there, the action proved it, the action showed it as genuine. Again with Rahab, the second example, Rahab protected the spies. If you go back and look at Joshua 2, in her own words, Rahab says, I believe your God is the one true God. Her actions sprung from her belief. She didn't protect them for her own benefit. She put her life on the line to do it. But her faith propelled her because she believed in their God. Y'all, true and genuine faith undeniably produces obedience to God. Not perfect obedience, but it does change us. And so faith produces obedience, and then that obedience shows the legitimacy of faith. It proves the faith. Those two things are meant to work together. And in that sense, James says, our good works justify us because our good works show the reality of faith. They vindicate that faith is real. Now, Paul uses that word justify differently. Same word, but he uses it in a different way. When Paul says we are justified by faith and not by works, Paul is talking about our, our entry into salvation. Not the evidence of salvation, but how we get saved in the first place, the origin of our relationship with God. How does a person get into right relationship with God? Paul says you get in by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You contribute nothing to the equation. God doesn't provide 99% and you only need to provide one. No, 100% entirely the free, gracious gift of God. That's how we're made right with him. And that's what Paul says, justify means in his examples, it gets you into relationship with God and therefore it requires nothing from you. You can't earn it. What we could not do, God did through Christ. And so here's the truth about us. In your sin, in my sin, we are unrighteous and we must be justified. That is something God must do. He has to declare that you are forgiven. God has to accept you on the basis of Jesus and not on the basis of your own good and bad deeds. God has to declare you righteous. You can't earn it. So you can't work for your salvation. It's the gift of God. Now look at how those two things complement. Paul tells us how we become justified in God's eyes. James tells us how the proof of that justification works itself out. You are brought to faith by the grace of God, and that faith is proven in how you live in response. Uh, Paul, just to show you that they're not at odds, in case you're, just, you're thinking maybe there's a sleight of hand here. Uh, in Ephesians 2, this wonderful verse about salvation, listen to how Paul does this. This is Paul now, not James, but I'm going to show you how they complement. Paul says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Do you see what's happening? We are saved by faith, not as a result of works, 
But we are saved unto good works. We are saved for the sake of good works. God even prepared them beforehand so that we would walk in them. We don't have to make it up as we go. We can live in loving obedience to God because we've been saved. And you can live with great comfort and not with fear as you look at the good fruit that God is producing in your life. Not perfect fruit. That's not the standard. We serve a perfect Savior, thank God. We don't have to be perfect for God to esteem us as righteous, right? But as we obey God, even imperfectly, even in our weaknesses, as we obey God, we take comfort in the fact that God is changing my heart, that God is giving me new affections, new concerns, new language, new treatment of other people. I'm not what I used to be. And and Paul says, no one may boast. We don't get the credit for this. It's God at work within us to will and to work for his good pleasure. Isn't that wonderful? You are saved by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. It's a faith that works because there's a grace powerful enough to produce a new heart. And so, y'all, there's a, there's a, there's a, a conviction here. As James concludes, you see chapter 2, verse 26. He just restates the same point he's been making in a new way. He says, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. That's meant to convict us. That's meant to give us pause. It really is. Not to create unnecessary doubt, but it's meant to stop us in our tracks. Y'all listen, there is a kind of faith that is believed, it's professed, I say it, but it's not genuine faith. It can't save. Because genuine faith shows up. Genuine faith reveals itself. True faith in Jesus produces a new heart, new affection, new priorities, new behavior. It has to. Because it's a gift of God. Um, So there's a conviction here. And I want to encourage you in this. You know, uh, there are multiple places in the Bible where we are told to examine ourselves, to see that we are in the faith. Um, Kyle York, the pastor, needs to do this. Second uh, Peter says, make certain about his calling and choosing of you. Um, Paul, when he talks about taking communion, he says, examine yourself when you take communion. Ask yourself, am I trusting Jesus truly? Is my life a life uh, under his lordship? Or am I simply acknowledging my spiritual assumptions? Um, We're meant to consider uh, Hebrews, I think, 3. Encourage one another, lest there be found in any one of you an evil and unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. We're meant to ask the hard questions because it's that important. If you have an assumed faith, James says, you're in deep trouble because you're you're, you're pacifying yourself with something that God has not produced God's got to change your heart through salvation. Um, But let me give an encouragement too, not just conviction. Oh my goodness, we're not going to end there. The encouragement is this. Y'all, how powerful is God's grace? If God's grace were only powerful enough to stamp us as forgiven and let us into heaven, of course, that would be wonderful. We'd all take it. But if God's grace were only that powerful, then frankly, that wouldn't be terribly impressive. No, God's grace is powerful enough not just to get you in, but to change your life, to change your heart. In fact, to give you a new heart, 
the scripture says. Jesus said, only if you are born again can you enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a new life with a new accompanying behavior. There's something about us. We are not who we used to be because God's grace has transformed us. Are we who we're going to be as we sit here right now? No, that's not the standard. But we're not who we were. Because God's grace, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, God's grace to me was not without effect. It changed him. And it's meant to change us too. Um, These verses are really not, in the end, about us. They're about God. If God loves us enough to send his Son, if God's grace is powerful enough to produce in us a new heart, then we need to acknowledge today that God's grace, true grace, brings true salvation and newness of life. And that's our challenge, that we would walk in the good works that he has already prepared beforehand for us. Um, My goal here is not to make you doubt. My goal is to affirm and shore up. True grace brings true transformation. True faith will work. Let's pray. Lord, um, my hope this morning, I pray, Lord, for me and for us, we would not come to a wrong conclusion here. That we have faith, but we really need to get after it more. We really need to add on to our faith and prove ourselves and earn our keep. Lord, protect us from that. That's wrong. Um, And and that's a never-ending thing. We'll never be good enough if it's up to us. And so, Lord, settle this truth today in our hearts um, that everybody in this room, none of us in this room are too bad that we are outside of the reach of your grace. Also, there are none of us so good that we are beyond the need of your grace. Your grace is what saves us. And your grace is what changes us. So, Lord, I pray today that you would convict our hearts. Perhaps we have lived on assumption only. Perhaps we've lived on our parents' or grandparents' faith or the faith of our culture, Um, but we don't see it in real life. And in that case, Father, would you show us the, the, the wonderful grace of Jesus today that we can know what it is to have a new heart to be totally acceptable in your sight through the forgiveness of our sins. That is a free gift. It's not an assumption. It's real. And I pray also, Lord, that you would encourage us today that your grace is powerful enough to change us. And so do that work in us, Lord. Where If, if our understanding of your mercy makes us lazy and complacent, then we have missed it. Lord, show us what it is to live in loving obedience to Jesus in light of all he is and all he's done for us so that we might have a faith that works, that we might be comforted to look in the mirror and say, God, thank you for bearing good fruit in me and you receive all glory for it. And we never have reason to doubt who we belong to. I pray that for every man and woman and child in this room. 
that the works of our, of our uh, hands and feet, the, the good work of holy speech and love of others, that those things are, are not to our credit. We don't boast. We just give you glory. And we affirm that we are truly your children. Um, Lord, thank you for hard words in the Bible that bring us, um, I pray, to, to, to see our own need. We need you today beyond what we can even imagine. Thank you, Lord, that you meet us in every need. In Christ's name, amen.